Hello, welcome to Brainland podcast number eight. I'm Ken Barrett. And I'm Andy Platman. One of the ethical issues raised during our offer of Brainland concern neuro-eugenics, uh, more specifically the Nazi eugenics program. As part of the background research, I read an excellent book called Eugenics, a very short introduction by Professor Philippa Levine. I emailed the author to ask if she'd come on the podcast and she agreed. So welcome, Philippa, from Seattle. And Thank many you. thanks for agreeing to speak with us. Sure. Well, perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about your background and how you became interested in this subject. Oh, gosh, that's, a, that's it's not as easy a question as it sounds, actually. Um, I'd been working on other kinds of things, and particularly on the management of sexually transmissible diseases and prostitution in the British Empire. And it became clear that there were very sort of specific ways in which doctors, social science experts, so-called experts and the rest in the 19th and early 20th century wanted to kind of um, make boxes into boxes and labels into which, which they put people. And so people who worked in sex work, for example, were thought somehow to, to have certain kinds of traits. So I got very interested in the ways in which um, different kinds of sciences decide on people's behaviour particularly their sexual behavior as a result of some kind of you know sort of mental disability or all those kinds of things and eugenics it became obvious that that as eugenics became more and more important um in the early 20th century these were these were the kinds of boxes that people were being put in and it spread from there and so it began to be something where uh, people were put into boxes because there was alcoholism in their family or because there was deafness or something like that and I just got fascinated by the ways in which this operated. And when I realized what an incredibly widespread phenomenon eugenics was and how incredibly influential it was in early early 20th century science and social science, that's that's kind of what grabbed me. Right. So I'm the novice here. So could we go back to basics? What is eugenics and how did it start as a movement? Right. No, it's, it's great questions. Um, the, the word eugenics was coined by Francis Galton, who was uh, a British scientist and i use the word scientist when you when you're talking the 19th century of course science has a, a slightly different meaning in the sense that you, you you wouldn't necessarily be someone working at a university you wouldn't necessarily have um, a position of that kind it was very often as it was in the case of gorton someone who clearly had the, the chops to do this kind of work but was a gentleman you know so he could he could afford in a sense to fund his own research gorton was a, a fairly distant cousin of charles darwin um and had read Darwin's work on evolution and become very excited and wondered, wondered whether some of what Darwin was saying could be applied to human society. Could you better human society by um, by implementing certain kinds of practices to make sure that only people with good, what we would today would call good genes, would reproduce? And so Galton gets very interested. He's a statistician. And so he comes at this from the, the point of view of statistics, gets very excited by these things and, and comes up with this term eugenics which is from the Greek, and it basically means better breeding. That's what it means. Um, this is from two different Greek words, including, of course, the, the root of gene, G-E-N-E, right, eugenics. So Gordon comes up with this idea of what he calls eugenics. And during his lifetime, it's it's you know, it's something that grows in stature. He's running around trying to decide, you know, whether he, he writes this extraordinary book on what he calls genius, in which he makes the argument that genius is something that has passed down the generations um, from 
in his and remember he's a Victorian so he's only looking at men from father to son and that therefore our intelligence is something that is passed down or lack of intelligence is something that is passed down and this becomes very very powerful as we move into a period in the early 20th century when um, governments and states are becoming much more interventionist in the way that they're approaching populations as populations grow as um, cities grow all of those kinds of things the management of population starts to become something that's very important so eugenics becomes this very convenient way in which new kinds of experts can decide upon populations and what to do with what they consider to be problem populations. Um, so it's it's a it's a field that wants to improve populations, improve human society by intervening. By, by, by actually intervening in reproduction. And that can take all sorts of forms. It can mean that you encourage some people to reproduce because you think they should, because they will have better babies. You can discourage people or literally prevent them from reproducing. Um, and of course, that's some of what we see in Nazi Germany, um, which I know is what your interest, particular interest is. Um, all sorts of things like that. You can affect adoption practices, you can affect birth control practices, all sorts of things. And so it's really about the the processes of reproduction and uh, ensuring that, that the, the right people reproduce and that the wrong people don't reproduce. There's your problem right there. Who gets to decide who are the right people and the wrong people to reproduce? But that's essentially in a nutshell what eugenics is. Wow, thank you. Um, yeah, as you say, the story on the opera concerns the Nazi sterilization program in the 1930s. Can we talk about that? I mean, from your book, I gather they didn't actually come up with the idea of sterilization. Oh, by no means. I mean, as I said, eugenics is 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 an invention that comes out of the UK, comes out of Britain. It's Francis Galton's word. Uh, were, he, he he coins the term. It spreads pretty quickly. It is a worldwide movement. I mean, sterilization. It's specifically sterilizing people who you don't want to breed. Oh, it's again incredibly widespread. It almost happens in Britain. It doesn't. Um, there's a kind of a U-turn on that stuff, but it does come up as a possibility um, in Parliament in the in the early 1930s. It, it gets gets pushed out, but it, it's widespread across Scandinavia. It's widespread in the United States, and it's widespread, of course, in Nazi Germany. But the Nazis acknowledged that they um, well, the Nazis admired the fact that the Americans had actually. Um, taken this up and, and spread this much more effectively and much, much earlier than they had. So the first sterilization, and remember in the United States, because you have a state by state set of laws around these kinds of things, it's not a national, it's not a federal law, it's, it's state by state. But the first state law that allows um, sterilization of the unfit, that's the, the terminology used at the time, it's 1907. Now, I seem to remember a map, is it in your book of, of the states that in um, in, the, in the United States that actually had it. It seems about half of them seem to have it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, it's it's more than half, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's something at its at its height. It's about 32 states out of 50. So it's, wow. it's yeah, it's, it's huge. Between 1907 and 1927, it's quite piecemeal. Um, and what happens in 1927 is a very, very famous Supreme Court case. It goes to the Supreme Court quite deliberately. The state of Virginia takes it to the Supreme Court because what they want to do is to establish its legitimacy, not because they're challenging it, but they want it challenged so they can actually deliberately um, make sure that it becomes legitimate and there will be no more um, challenges to it. And there's a very famous case called Buck versus Bell that goes to court in 1927 and legitimizes 
um, the sterilization of the so-called unfit. Um, and it uses a case of a young woman who um, was raped and got pregnant out of wedlock when she was quite young. Uh, and the argument was that she was, again, in the, in the vocabulary of the time, feeble-minded. And she was said to be the feeble-minded daughter of a feeble-minded mother, and that she would therefore produce a feeble-minded child. Um, and so the argument was that we have to stop people like that from breeding because this is very expensive for the state and it's not good for society. And she was, she was in fact, um, after that first child, um, she was sterilized, as was her sister and her mother. And I read that uh, 60,000 women were sterilized. More than. Um, 60,000 in California alone. Really? Yeah, and it's not just women, by the way, it's men as well. Men as well. Um, both men and women are sterilized. Um, so don't, you know, it, it, it is gendered in many ways, um, but but both men and women do undergo sterilization procedures. Is this just the, the feeble-minded, though, in the States? I know the Nazis included mental illness and, and epilepsy. Uh, yes. Sort of disorders in Same in the States. It could be all sorts of things. If you um, if things like criminal, um, criminal, criminal activity was considered to be hereditary at this time. I mean, they're playing very fast and loose with genetics. Um, and what happens in the 1930s, particularly as you start to get the um, as genetics really becomes much more sophisticated as a discipline in the 1930s. Um, with uh, with the kind of neo-Darwinian stuff that comes back in in the 1930s, genetic geneticists start to say, wait, 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 but this is far too simplistic um, an understanding of heredity. But but eugenicists used a fairly simplistic understanding in which things like deafness, blindness, um, epilepsy, alcoholism, vagrancy, criminality, all of these things were considered likely to be hereditary. And so there were a wide range of things that could get you sterilized um, in this period. Um, feeble-mindedness was the term that was used for what, what we today would probably call intellectual disadvantage or intellectual disabilities. Um, and this, by the way, it's, it's eugenics that came up with those uh, terms like moron and idiot and cretin that get, you know, get flung around kind of playground insults. Those were considered scientific terms. They were different gradations of so-called feeble-mindedness in the, 19, in, the, in the early 20th century. Where was the resistance to all this? Like obviously, some states didn't do it and, and Britain didn't. My gather Churchill was quite keen on, on this. Churchill was very keen, yeah. in the, Back in the day. And, uh, yep. but, uh, but in, the, in Nazi Germany, uh, too. I mean, was there much resistance in the states that, or, or just is it in the legislatures in the states that didn't have it? They just, they weren't, they didn't go for it. Sort of thing. Sometimes it was just didn't go for it. You know, they just, it just didn't come up. Um, but there was resistance. And it's an interesting, just like eugenics itself, which, is something that crosses the political spectrum in really interesting ways. So you've got people on the left and people on the right um, who are interested in promoting eugenics, but you've also got this extraordinary range of people who are resistant. So one of the big resistances to um, eugenics, interestingly enough, and, and not surprisingly, but it's just you wouldn't necessarily think of it at first as the Catholic Church. So Catholics are wildly anti-eugenics for the most part um, because of the, the reproductive angle, right? Because what you're doing is interfering with God's work. Um, and that's that's a no-no for Catholics. And so you do get a lot of very organized opposition from Catholic communities in the States in particular. Um, you also have obviously um, people who are just, you know, politically opposed to 
to these to, to these ideas and see it as a form of dictatorship, see it as something uh, you get it from the left, obviously, because they see it not wrongly as something that is going to have a far greater impact on poor people than it is on, on the wealthy, uh, because you know, the wealthy can always get around things. There are some very famous cases of young women in particular who were sterilized um, from wealthy families, but it's a relatively rare, a relatively rare phenomenon. Um, so you get a range of, of people who are opposed to this. You also get scientists who are saying this is such a, such a travesty of understanding of heredity, um, as I said, particularly in the 1930s. And quite a lot of scientists who've been involved in eugenics in the 1920s walk away, back away from it in the 1930s and don't want to have anything to do with it. But not all of them by any means. I mean, Julian Huxley, for example, stays, you know, um, Thomas Huxley's grand, uh, grandson and Aldous Huxley's brother, um, he stays. He, he stays in the eugenics movement um, even even into the nineteen thirties, despite being um, involved with the neo-Darwinian synthesis. And a lot of doctors were swept away by these ideas too. Yes, uh, absolutely, no question. Uh, and of course, in Germany, they were to some extent required to report certain kinds of mental illness or um, hered what were considered to be hereditary illnesses to the state, and they could lose their, their positions if they didn't do so. That said, something it, the number of doctors who joined the Nazi party is actually stunning. I mean, something like 50% of German doctors joined the Nazi party in the late 1920s and early 1930s, um, which is one of those things that you just, you know, it's just very hard to, hard to imagine, but it's the case. Yeah. So yes, doctors do get swept away by this. And at some level one can sort of see you know, it, on the surface, improving society, it's, you know, it sounds great, right? Improving the lives of your patients, improving society, making a disease-free place, uh, getting rid of disabilities. I mean, it's very seductive at some level, right? Because there is also an angle, we're talking about, okay, so sterilization is what we call negative eugenics, but there's also a kind of eugenics that is called positive eugenics. And this is this is what gets taken up, particularly in Latin America, because a lot of eugenics in Latin America as well, but it's mostly not sterilization, it's a little bit, but not much. But positive eugenics is doing things like disease control, better housing, antenatal care, um, and postnatal care, um, you know, those kinds of things. And so you've got, in a lot of places, what you've got is a left-wing eugenics that is trying to improve society through making sure that there's good nutrition and good healthcare and good housing for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford those things from their own pockets. So there are very different kinds of eugenics at work in this period. Well, since we've been preparing to talk to you, I've just thought about my career as a GP and what I, what I might term eugenics light. Yes. Screening for Down syndrome, screening for sickle cell disease, screening for cystic fibrosis. Yep. All for the benefit of society and humanity. Yep. Without a, a qualm about it. Some of these things now being challenged, particularly perhaps in, in respect of Down syndrome. Yep. Actually, there was a documentary on TV a couple of weeks ago with actually people with Downs leading the protest against, you know, it was hard to arguing against it when they're saying you're trying to eradicate us. You know what I mean? It was, it was very yeah. powerful, really. It's, it's a, it's a, a major shift, really. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, and it's complicated because on the one hand, there is that kind of disability rights movement, which is saying, why are you trying to eradicate us? You know, we actually are um, fully, fully formed and often very happy humans. 
So you've got the disability rights movement on one side, but then there's been this very interesting um, development in um, in the Mediterranean where uh, beta thalassemia is, is quite common and it's, it's a devastating disease, an absolutely devastating disease. And there's been this kind of, um, and one could call it eugenics, there's been this kind of um, uh, attempt to get people to screen for beta thalassemia because you know it's it's, it's passed down by if, if both parents have it. Um, trying to get people to, to screen before marriage to make sure they do, they're not carrying the gene. And they've had an incredible success rate. And what they've done is they've it, it's sort of a, a combination of the the church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the state, um, and sort of local medical practices trying to come together to ensure that this is a disease that doesn't get passed down. Because this is the, unlike something like Down syndrome, you know, beta thalassemia is, you know, it's it's a devastating disease that will that will kill. Um, it's not a question of living with a disability. The, these are killing diseases. Uh, and so PKU is another very good example of, um, of, a, of, a, of a something where, you know, you just you just you're just looking at, at trouble um, that's going to end in, 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 in almost certainly in, in, in an early death. So there are again, there are different ways of thinking about these things and there are different practices at work. But yes, in some ways, one could argue I, I, I'm I'm. A bit resistant to 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 seeing those things as eugenics, things like screening um, for devastating illnesses. I'm a little bit reluctant to see those as eugenics because I think it tars them with a brush that isn't necessarily a fair brush. But at the same time, I think the disability rights people have a very strong point um, that there are that you know that 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 there are certain kinds of of disabilities that that do not there is there is no reason necessarily to to eradicate them. So it's a very powerful argument, as as Ken just said. Complicated stuff. I used to work with people with Huntington's disease, and and that progressed right. to the stage where you had free implantation diagnosis. So yeah. you know you'd look at the embryo before it was implanted in the mother, and yeah. if it was genetically connected, you know, then then it wouldn't be. But and that again, it's very actually the news today about this in Israel. They just created a sort of embryo-like thing. So it's an interesting. Obviously. And Israel's been the re a real leader in these kinds of uh, genetic experimentations, <laughs> a serious leader in that. Um, and they, you know, state they have state-sponsored, um, all sorts of state-sponsored reproductive um, uh, stuff going on. It's a very interesting, a very interesting case study is, is, is Israel. Some of the leading works coming out of there right now. Nazi uh, euthanasia program. Mm. They, they called it mercy killing. They did. Well, they kind of took it to the next level, didn't it? Really. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, here's I, the thing about the Nazi stuff: is they're, they're, yeah, they are practicing eugenics in the early 1930s, prior to the war, um, in things like the so-called mercy killings, the euthanasia programs, the T4, what they call the T4 programs. Um, and in, you know, in, in insisting that doctors report so-called hereditary illnesses, all of that kind of stuff, for sure, they're doing that. By the time we get to the war and the Holocaust, I, I, I want to kind of underline that, that the, the kinds of practices that we see in the camps 
are not things that most historians historians of eugenics would recognize as eugenics. It's eugenic, I suppose, in the sense that they are deliberately trying to kill off those who they just who they perceive as unfit. But I think what we need to draw a line under is that things like the, the experiments, which are what we mostly think about, right, when we think about the Holocaust, the, the use of um, concentration camp inmates for barometric pressure experiments, twin experiments, um, experiments about eyes, you know, all of those kinds of things, that's not eugenics. That's scientific research gone awry, right? But it's not eugenics. There is a eugenic impulse in the sense that these are lives that that are dispensable, you know, that, that we can that we don't care about these lives because these people should die. There's that aspect to it, but the practices themselves are not eugenic. The eugenic practices that we see, for the most part, are in the 1930s under the Nazis, and they are a continuation, a, a, a very deep continuation, but a continuation of practices that already exist. Germany was a leader in medical and scientific research in the early 20th century, had been since about the 1870s or 1880s. It was a major player. Um, scientists from all over the world wanted to spend time in late 19th and early 20th century Germany because it was such a leader in terms of scientific research. And the reason for that was because the state had actually um, really spent money. The, the, the state had really invested in science in a much more um, organized and deep way than was the case in most other countries. Um, what so the so-called mandarins of, of, of Germany. So Germany was a very attractive scientific environment. Eugenics takes hold there very early in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and there are a couple of institutes that gets get set up, particularly the Kaiser Wilhelm, Wilhelm Institute, which is a, it, it basically, it's what we would call a genetics institute today. It exists today under another name. Um, these kinds of reasons meant that Germany was really quite advanced in terms of its research into eugenics. So when the Nazis come to power in the 1930s, this stuff is already there. It's not invented by the Nazis. And that thing's really important because I think sometimes people say, oh, eugenics is a Nazi science. It's not. It predates the Nazis, significantly predates the Nazis. It gets picked up by them because it's a very, very convenient way to practice anti-Semitism, to practice all the other antis that, that, that the Nazis practice, right? I mean, but it's not a Nazi science um, and you will find very similar practices um, happening, as I've already said, in Scandinavia, in the United States um, and in little pockets of places elsewhere as well. And as, as Ken said earlier, it's, you know, it's close to happening in Britain and Churchill is definitely a devotee. Churchill wants to, to introduce um, sterilization for the so-called unfit, mentally and physically unfit um, in Britain. It doesn't happen. Britain steps back from that brink and says, no, we will institutionalize the mentally um, unfit, the mentally disabled, but we're not going to, we're not going to kill them. We're not going to euthanize them. We're not going to or, or sterilize them. They move back from both of those positions. But yeah, the, the, the euthanasia program in the 1930s is probably the the most. Uh, it, it's definitely the the most extensive of the sterilization programs that happen anywhere. But you know, it's we, it's probably we don't know the numbers. That's one of the problems. But it's at least 350,000 people were sterilized by the Nazis, um, and. All sorts of people were sterilized under this program. You've got people who are considered to be intellectually disabled. You've got people who are considered to be socially undesirable. 
Um, and the one very interesting group of people who had sterilized under this were the um, offspring of couples where you'd had a black soldier, um, particularly from the French occupation of the Rhine after the First World War, and a white German mother. So they were um, of mixed origin, and they were considered, therefore, to be, you know, um, unfit because they were of mixed race. And so all of those children, they were called the Rhineland Bastards. That was the name given to them because they were mostly, the, the you know, they were uh, unmarried mothers um, and they were considered bastards because they were people of colour as well. But they had African fathers. They were all sterilised um, whenever they could find them. Um, Misogyny laws were, were, were a big thing in the States as well, weren't they, actually? I mean, Absolutely. The, the fear of miseducation... There's a yeah. series based in Montana called eight, uh, 1923. It's following up the Yellowstones of the series. I, I haven't and seen it, but I know of it. Yeah. The last episode, it, somebody was arrested for misogyny and in, 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 uh, in, married a Japanese woman. Yeah. Um, and she was arrested at, at the end. Of, so I, I wasn't aware of that before. But uh, Oh, yeah. And miscegenation laws are not unique to the United States or, or indeed to Nazi Germany. Um, a lot of uh, British colonies had miscegenation laws in the late 19th and early, particularly in the early 20th century, which made it illegal for people of different races to either to marry or uh, or indeed to have sex. Um, and you could you could be arrested for that. Uh, Papua New Guinea is one example. Um and not surprisingly, early South Africa. Um, so prior, this is pre-apartheid. This is when it was still a British colony. Um, that there were yeah, there were laws against um, sexual liaisons between um, white people and indigenous peoples, for sure. So this is not a, this is not a, an American and a German speciality. The British had it too. Um, many many places had these kinds of laws, um, uh, anti-miscegenation laws. And again, they were using a kind of bastardized genetics to justify this. You know, there was a notion that. Um, the the a child of mixed races would inherit the worst of both races' traits, as if race were actually a biological um, reality, which of course it isn't. So uh, it was all it was all scientific nonsense, but it was very very strongly um, you know pushed by people who um, had a, a, an axe to grind in, in, in these kinds of fields. So yeah, miscegenation is again something that you see across the board in a lot of different places. So again, it's like you know we we think of. The, the Nazis as being the eugenicists, but actually when you when you start to scratch the surface, what you realize is that all of these things have a much longer, much broader history. Um, and then the, the Nazis were often picking up on and running with, there's no question about that, they were running with ideas that came out of other places and were not invented by the Germans, not even close. So they practiced the Holocaust in a sense on the you, you, people who were killed eugenically, didn't they? You know, the, the gassing and this sort of thing seems to have been tested out on people with learned disability and mental Definitely. Illness. Yeah. I mean, the first gas chambers are, are not in the concentration camps. They are, are often um, uh, in these T4 centres uh, where they're killing people um, who've been reported as having as having various kinds of uh, of. of hereditary illnesses. But the other thing that also happens that during the First World War, um, when Germany is kind of, you know, it, it's 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 not working out so well for Germany towards the end of the war. Uh, and one of the things that they do um, systematically is to take food that was being given to patients in psychiatric hospitals and sending that to the front for the soldiers. So they're basically systematically starving psychiatric patients. Um, in This is in sort of 1917, 1918, 1919, right, when the war is really... Uh, biting and then the post-war thing is um uh there's not enough food around so they are they, they don't mind starving psychiatric patients in order to feed 
soldiers. And it, it, again, when you think about it, it is not dissimilar to what then happens in the T4 centers in the 1930s. And this is before that, this is long before the Nazis are in power. This is 1918, 1919. So there is a history of that. Um, and there's a book that comes out in 1920 by a couple of, of German, uh, German, one is a lawyer and one I think is a scientist. Um, called, uh, in, in English, it would be called Lives Not Worthy of Living. Um, I can't remember the German title off the top of my head, I have to look it up. But but the book is basically about why it's okay to end the lives of those whose lives are not worth living. And a life is not worth living if it can't be lived well. Mm. Um, so again, and this is what disability rights people today are, are, are picking up on. It's like, well, who says my life isn't worth living? Who says that just because I'm in a wheelchair or can't do X? That, you know, what disability rights people would say is that's not my problem. That's a problem that able-bodied people have created by creating a world in which those of us who are in wheelchairs have a hard time getting around. And it's a very powerful argument. Right. But that, so that book in 1920 is saying, you know, it's okay, it's morally okay to get rid of people who whose lives we don't consider worth living. But of course, the nub always in all of this, and this is what the disability rights people are talking about, is who gets to decide what life is worth living? Right. Who gets to decide what constitutes unfitness in society? Who gets to decide that person A should reproduce and person B should be not allowed to reproduce, right? And so that's that's where the disability rights people have kind of picked up on the real... The Nazis managed to conflate eugenics with ethnic cleansing. Yes, absolutely. And that happens to some extent elsewhere as well. So if you look, for example, at Scandinavia, it's very often the Sami people or other indigenous peoples who are more likely to find themselves sterilized or, uh, or, or you know, just under the microscope, as it were. Same thing um, you'll find in, in the US where often it will be um, Hispanic populations or black populations, uh, although it can also work the other end. So, for example, in Virginia, on the east coast of the United States, which is the, the place where we have the Buck versus Bell 1927 Supreme Court decision. In fact, it's mostly white folk who get sterilized. The reason being that what they're trying to do is preserve good whiteness. So these people are an embarrassment to the white race because they're feckless, they're poor, they're undereducated, they're having babies out of wedlock, blah, 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 blah. And so get rid of them in order to purify and keep whiteness in certain ways so it that race that kind of racial ethnic cleansing stuff can work two different ways right it can actually have an impact on poor white people just as much as it can have an impact on people of color depending on what the local circumstances are but as i said it's not just you know the scandinavian uh, in scandinavia it's it's often indigenous peoples who found themselves um under the gun and uh, switzerland too there's an interesting program in switzerland in the 19th 20s called um, the Kinder den Landfasser program, in which what they were doing was removing uh, children from um, parents who were travelers, um, you know, different kinds of, it was the Yenish for the most part, because that's, you know, the travelers in that part of the world. They were removing the children from their natal uh, families and raising them um, in, um, in, in kind of Swiss white society in order to break the bond between parent and child. Um, in order to kind of um, improve things. Same thing, by the way, in Australia with the so-called stolen generation um, phenomenon, which you're probably familiar with, in which they were taking 
um, children who had white fathers and Aboriginal mothers, they were removing them from their mothers um, and uh, raising them actually in boarding schools. And the idea was that they were going to dilute Aboriginality, dilute blackness by hoping that these people would marry white. Again, a very crude, very unscientific understanding of both race and heredity. Um, but there's, the, you know, the, 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 there's actually a book by, by one of the, the, the architects of that scheme in which he shows you photographs of the lightening of the skin of children who go through this process. Um, so the stolen generation phenomenon, which begins fairly early in the 20th century and goes all the way into the 1960s, is another very good example of what we're talking about here. So again, when I say worldwide, I really do mean worldwide. I mean, coming back to the UK, I worked at a place called the Berlin Neurological Institute in uh, in Bristol in the 80s. And it was it was uh, founded with a bequest from a Reverend Burden, who made a lot of money in the 1920s uh, following the Mental Deficiency Act. Uh, yep. mean? And, it, and it was people who needed care and control. So there was no yep. sterilization, but you'd That's hide right. them off into That's these colonies, right. really. Is that right. UK eugenics, really? Is that a... Yeah, I, I mean, the UK largely practices institutionalization through the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913. Um, it practices institutionalization. They they put people in what were called colonies, um, and very often people stayed there for life um, because they were considered to be incapable of 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 living um, a life independently that would that would not involve. Um, additional cost to the state mostly because that way you know there was a fear they would reproduce and by keeping them in colonies yeah. by keeping them in institutions you could at least in theory prevent of course in fact people always find ways around that right people were always sneaking off but you know the, the, the theory was that if you had them in colonies if you had them in institutions you could prevent um reproduction because they would not have access to sex i mean that's essentially what what the the british version of it does so it, it tries to cut it off um, in that way, by preventing by preventing sexual congress between people who would be um, mentally deficient, that's that's the principal way in which we see it play out um, in Britain. Uh, there's a lot of research done in Britain as well. Um, so you've got people like um, Carl Pearson, uh, who's the Gordon Professor at UCL, uh, University College London, doing um, work um, proving, as if proving that you know um, that white native children in Britain um, have a higher intelligence than immigrant Jewish children. They're doing that work in the 1920s, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they're doing a lot of statistical, um, what they call biometrics work to, to prove that the white race is superior, all of those kinds of things. So it, it, there's definitely that going on in Britain as well. Um, it's mostly class-based in Britain, but there is some kind of racial and ethnic stuff of that kind. But yeah, I would say that um, the 1913 Mental Deficiency Act means that that's <clears throat> principally what you get happening. Um, in the UK, the, the sterilisation never goes through. It doesn't. Mercy killing was quite a big thing before. In fact, the Nazis gave it a bad name, didn't they? I suppose you know a lot of doctors, are, including very prominent ones, are very supportive of the idea of mercy killing very d disabled children uh, shortly after birth in the 1930s. Oh, and earlier, um, back in the 19, in 19, let me think of the date. I think it's about 1916. Um, there's a film. I could. I. I may have the date wrong. I'm so sorry. But it, it's in the book. You can check. You can check the right, date. Right. Um, the film. A, 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 a um, silent film came out called The Black Stalk, and it was made 
um, on behalf of and about an American doctor called Harry Hazelden. He was a Chicago doctor and his thing, his shtick was mercy killings. You know, if the child is born um, with disabilities, if the child is born with some kind of disfigurement, blah, 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 let him die. And the film shows, you know, the nurse begging for the child's life and Dr. Hazelden going, no, we must let this child die. Sure. Um, and the film was made as a propaganda film to advance the cause of mercy killing. Uh, and this is this is back when eugenics was still relatively young. This is, but as I said, I think it's about 1916. It might even be might be a little earlier, actually. I can't, I just cannot recall the dates from getting old. You can't remember things. Um, but Hazelden was quite um quite a, a big figure in the mercy killing kind of world. And it was, yeah, it was a very common practice, uh, 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 but not spoken about. It was it no, was no. quite it was done very quietly. Well, just let the child die. On that somber note, well, I suppose that the Nazis at least it gave it a bad name, didn't it? So it's not really it's it, euthanasia is a tricky one because of course there are arguments in favor of euthanasia there are arguments violently against oh, well, euthanasia. Yeah. what the nazis were doing was something completely different because there was often a lot of torture before the killing as well because of the kinds of experimentation that they were putting people we're, we're trying to confine this to like a zoom 40 minutes so that's been absolutely fantastic for them. fantastic thanks so much my pleasure um get in touch if you need anything okay well, that's, that's very that kind thank you very much that's great thank you Bye 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 Wow, it's a, a real privilege having these uh, conversations. I mean, that was extraordinary. So thank you so much to Philippa for giving us her time. Uh, there'll be a link to the book I mentioned, um, Eugenics, a very short introduction, in the episode notes. I might also mention a very good series of programmes on BBC Sounds by the geneticist um, Adam Rutherford about the same subject. So thank you for listening and see you next time.